If you have your Bibles, uh, let's go ahead and open them up. Uh, Luke 15, it's like a mass exodus. Lane told me last week, he's like, did you see all the kids that left? And I was like, well, as long as the adults stay, I guess. That's, that's all right. Uh, if you have your Bible, Luke, Luke 15. If you don't have a Bible uh, and you would love a free one, we'd love to gift one to you. Just raise your hand and uh, someone responsible will run one to you. Uh, so, okay, group poll time. Okay, and this might be just a little bit more uh, than you're willing to expose about yourself today. Uh, has anybody ever been to the principal's office while in school? Every day, okay. All right, ever, ever, okay. So, so I was thinking about this week. I've, I've been to the principal's office three times uh, in my life. Uh, and uh, now, two were for in trouble, and one I'm about to tell you about. Um, but I remember... Uh, this time when I was in uh, the first grade, okay, now uh, we have like two principals here in the school, so you need to understand the weight of your title and what it does to a kid, okay? Uh, so I was in first grade, Liberty Elementary, Miss Mosier's classroom, minding my own business, right, being as awesome as usual, uh, and then over the, speaking this was this was back in the day, we didn't have phone calls that you gave to the teacher, it was the overhead thing, it's like, um... Miss Mosier, will you please send Brandon Geary to the office, right? Uh, at least that's the way I heard. And, and I remember in that moment thinking, um, oh my gosh, what, what did I do? And hoping that Miss Mosier would understand loyalty uh, and say, sorry, he died this afternoon, so he can't make it to you. And, but she didn't, because um, apparently she needed a paycheck. Uh, and she says, absolutely. And so I start... I remember walking down this hallway, right? And it's, it's the first one. When you come in, you take a left, okay? I still remember. This is burnt into my mind. I'm walking down the hallway, and I start thinking, what did I do? What, what, what did I do? And, and I knew that if I was in trouble with the principal, that I would be in even more trouble when I came home. And, and so I make it about halfway down this hallway, uh, and now, here's what you need to know. I haven't always been this rebellious kind of guy that you see before you, right? Um, and I start walking down this hallway, and I just start sobbing, right? Just like baby kind of crying. And I'm contemplating, okay, if, if I never make it to the principal's office, maybe I just run away from home, right? Life will be good that way. And, and I recall when I walked into the office, and the principal's standing there, and... In his confusion, um, because he, here I am just sobbing, walking into the door, because I know I'm about to be in big-time trouble. Uh, and I remember him looking at me really confused as he's holding a thing of cotton candy. All right? And he's like, what's going on? And, and again, it turns out I was being rewarded um, for being a suck-up. I mean, for being a good kid. Uh, in, in the classroom, and I was getting to eat cotton candy in school. But in my head, there was only one reason you ever go to the principal's office, and it's because you have done something wrong, and you must face the wrath, right? All right is that about right, Stephen? that feel, feel good? You're like, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm the, the law around here kind of thing. Um, and, and I recalled this moment because I think my attitude in back in first grade is, is very similar to that of many believers when, when you have to do business with God. 
when you when you come in and uh, and you're confident when it comes between you and God that you are confident of really only one thing, and that's you've blown it. That you have uh, done something wrong and you have to crawl back and you have to ask for God to forgive you and and you you may know something about. God loved you and He sent Jesus, but, uh, but, but you picture God as just an angry old man who's just waiting to get you. Uh, and and, and, and I've, I've talked with people who even make this differentiation between uh, Christ's attitude towards them and the fathers. That they view Jesus kind of as your buddy uh, who's, who's like holding God back, saying, no, 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 you, I'm, I'm keeping Him from getting to you, from what He really wants to do to you. Uh, and and it's it's a strange uh, interaction that that you might understand Jesus's role as the one who paid for your sins and uh, and that really what he's doing is just trying to prevent God from giving you what you really feel you deserve and 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 you may have never pictured God in that way you might just be as dysfunctional uh, or not as dysfunctional as I am um, but 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 let's ask this how, how do you picture God when it comes to your sin? How, how do you picture His attitude? What do you think His expression is when you come to Him, uh, possibly with the same sin over and over and over and over again? Uh, what, what do you think His attitude is towards you in the light of, of your failures? What, what do your emotions tell you when you contemplate these Christians and uh, these questions? And I think like most Christians, you would probably acknowledge that, that God loves you, but do you think He likes you? That's a, that's a big question to be asking ourselves. I know God loves me because the Bible told me so, but, but does, he, does He like me? Or, or do you think He just kind of puts up with you because He's at this point He sent His Son to die for you and He's pot committed? And, and I think for many, these are, these are difficult questions, and I think... Um, for some, the term father even uh, brings up, uh, may not bring with it the feelings of love and acceptance, but it conjures up feelings of, of fear and dread and hurt and disappointment. That, that even our, our view of our uh, Heavenly Father gets misassociated uh, when we consider some of the relationships that we, had with, we have with our, our earthly dads. And, and that in itself has a potential of robbing us of the assurance of uh, our, the Heavenly Father who, who deeply does care for us. And so, so bring all that up because we're, we're talking about here uh, these next couple of weeks is, is about this topic of forgiveness and namely our willingness to carry forgiveness into our relationships as a reflection of the forgiveness that we've received um, by God through Jesus. And... And so we've, we've carried two specific verses uh, these last couple of weeks. And namely, one of them is, uh, Lawson, I think we have them for the, the slide, if you don't mind. That in Ephesians 4, uh, we found this command to be kind to one another, uh, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then in Colossians 3, that we would bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so we must also forgive. And so we, we've, we're taking this, not thought, 
not suggestion. We're taking this uh, command in the Bible and saying, okay, how do I carry that into my conflicts? How do I carry that into the wounds that I've received in my life? How do I carry forgiveness when I would do really rather do anything else but that? Uh, and then we're saying we constantly look at the way God has treated us. We constantly look. And so, so what we've done here is we've been, we've been trying to repair a foundation. Uh, and so last week we, we looked at the fact that, that God loves us when we are very unlovable. Uh, that He cares about us when we really don't deserve it. Uh, that, that in the Gospel we have a Son that is offered in Jesus and we have a song that is sung in uh, the fact that, that God sings over you. That, that not only does He love you, but He likes you. And, and so now what we're going to do today is we're going to walk into, uh, a, for some it will be a very familiar scene uh, in, in the Bible, um, but we want to continue to bring into this thought, what do I do with my life when I keep messing it up? What do I do with my sin? How does God view that? And what does He want me to do with it? And so uh, for that, we're, we're going to go uh, to Luke 15. And so we'll, we'll just kind of jump into this, that, that we're not the first generation to struggle with a distorted view of God's attitude towards sinners. Okay, uh, Back in Luke 15, the Jews of the first century, they really had this similar uh, misperception uh, about them. And it originated uh, from this premise that, that God doesn't tolerate sin, which is absolutely the case. Uh, God gives us very clearly in the Old Testament a standard of holiness, uh, not that knowing that we wouldn't live up to it, but to show the standard that a relationship with Him deserves that he doesn't cower down to sin, that he says, I, I will not have any part of it. And so he gives us things like the Ten Commandments where immediately we say, yeah, I, I can't do those things. And so what happened was in this attempt to please God, the people, uh, a system was, was made to where we would rate the kind of sins that were the worst. And, and so the... So in time, this thinking developed to this point where, where God was perceived as despising sinners altogether. That He was hostile towards them. And, and, and this, this led to this cultural divide between uh, people accepted by the church and people who were shunned by the church. Now, the New Testament, as we read it in the Gospels, uh, typically you would find this, this group of people, uh, and they were always called the same kind of things. They were tax collectors and sinners. Uh, tax collectors and sinners. And so those people were very much outcasted uh, from not only the church, but from life. If you were part of the church and um, you had a relative or you had a kid or you were this kind of person, you were removed from society and you were treated as lesser than. Uh, and then, so, so as a result, there were these two polarizing mindsets of the day that one group felt as if God would never accept them because of their past. That God would never choose to walk in their direction because of the way that they were living. He would never offer them hope. And so they had none. And then you had this other group of people that because of their self-righteousness, uh, they believed that God had to accept them. That they did all of these things in the right ways and that they were um, determined 
to make God, to protect God from people who would mess God's reputation up. And, and so, to correct this, this thinking, Jesus does this really beautiful and helpful thing for us in the Gospels. He comes into these moments and he says, let me explain to you the heart of the Father. Let me, let me show you who God really is. Because what we are suffering from in this moment here is a very distorted view of a God that you made which fits nicely into your pocket so you can use them as a weapon. Right? And so he says, we're not going to, to do that. And now we know this um, that because Jesus wants us to understand uh, his Father's true attitude towards sinners, which we talked about last week. We, we know this in the way that the parable uh, is introduced. And it says this in Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Okay? Now this is something you commonly see in the Gospels. That when wherever Jesus was, people were attracted to him. And the people who were most intrigued were the ones that the church said, you don't need to be spending time with him. Or he doesn't need to be spending time with you. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And so he, being Jesus, told them, being the audience, this parable. And, and so here's the issue is, that the religious leaders could not understand how a man who claims to be from God could be so attractive to and so attracted toward such unholy and unclean people. Not remembering that the church is for messed up people. Jesus will, will consistently come in and he'll say, it's, it's the sick that I've come for. Well, they, they don't need me. I've come for the sick. I've come to seek and save that is lost, and they believe that, that God has rejected these people, and so Jesus' actions, they don't fit with their notion of God's attitude towards sinners. And so, so one of the greatest things we see Jesus do in the Gospels is explain the Father to them. And it's really helpful, no matter where you fall. If you're deeply devoted, uh, devoted, devoted, um, if you're deeply devoted, if you're just walking and, and wondering, or if you are very far from the heart of God, that, that Jesus explaining God's heart to us is so very helpful. And so what we find in this chapter are, are three parables. Uh, and they each kind of essentially say the same thing, but, but with each one it kind of hits just a little bit closer to the heart. And, and the first parable is, is about this man who has lost a sheep. He has a hundred sheep, he loses one, and it says he leaves the ninety-nine and he finds the one sheep. Uh, and then as he is returning, he finds his neighbors and he says, Rejoice! Rejoice! Let's celebrate because I've found this sheep that was lost. And Jesus brings the point home and he says, he says that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That when, when we repent, the heavens celebrate. And then he moves from, from the sheep to another uh, parable about the lost coin. And if you ever lost $10 in your home, I think you can um, appreciate the urgency, right? Uh, and if you, if you lose $10 in your home and you're like, not a big deal, we need to be friends because I could use the $10 that you lost. All right? And so he tells this, this parable of this woman who's lost 10 silver coins. And she looks all throughout the house. And when she finally finds it, she tells her neighbors, 
Found it! Let's celebrate! Because what was lost is now found, and Jesus says that there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And, and so we see this theme that's developing here in the reaction of the heavens when sinners repent, when you and I render our hearts to God. And, and there's this great celebration, there's great rejoicing, and this, this paints for the audience a stark difference in how they have been led to believe God reacts to our repentance. And, and I think this is why Jesus tells one more parable and it's not to belabor the point, but to grab the heart, because in, in the parable that we're about to encounter, we're not going to be able to read all of it, but in what we encounter in the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the wayward son, we find ourselves in it. And some of us can find ourselves in, all, in both roles of the sons. Uh, some of us, all of us, started at least as the wayward son, and then some of us converted to the older son. And God has some very specific things that he says to both. We're only going to deal with the wayward because we're trying to stay in context to, to how God responds to our sins. And so, so he says this in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, so Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. All right, you tracking with me? All right, that's, this is going to be important. If you don't know there's two sons in the story, it's not going to work. Um, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. That's an important part. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So let's just in that moment. Okay? Imagine to be at a part of hunger where you say, the slop that we're feeding the pigs, I think I'd like some of that. Okay? But when he came to himself, verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's servant, hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, uh, and, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and, and bring the fattened calf, and let's kill it, and let us eat, and let us celebrate. For this son of mine was, what? Dead. It is alive again. He was lost, and is found. 
And it says, and they began to celebrate. So in this parable, all, all the people in the audience are represented. And for that matter, all the people in this audience are represented. That, that Jesus explains the heart of God through the actions of the Father. Uh, he's talking about God's treatment of sinners and tax collectors and the wayward son. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't read this section of the parable because of time purposes, but, but even the Pharisees and the scribes, they're, they're, uh, they have roles in this parable as you look at the response of the, the older brother, uh, which uh, the father has some amazing counsel and clarification for. Uh, I encourage you to read that uh, this week if you have like the three minutes of your time to do that. Um, but this section of the parable uh, we've traveled down is particularly aimed at those people living under the awesome load of knowing their actions have displeased God and in a similar light have hurt the heart of God. Uh, and and so, so when we understand the culture of the day, we, we can learn that, that Jesus could not have pictured a wayward son in any more of a degrading manner. Uh, that, that first of all, uh, in his selfish egotism, uh, he hears the call of a distant land and he asks for his inheritance early. Um, now, before we get all up in arms about how could a son do that, uh, let's, let's first acknowledge that we at times hear the call of a distant land. Uh, we at times hear or see or are tempted by things that we say, will that bring me more satisfaction Will that bring me more peace, more joy than what I have here at home? So, so we can acknowledge that, just for a moment maybe, that, that maybe this guy is in a dirt bag, that he hears the call of a distant land, and, and the custom was that the father would give the inheritance at the time he chose. Uh, and, and it would have been unheard of for a son, especially a younger son, to come in and say, Hey, Dad, about you dying, you're not doing it fast enough. Um, so can, can you go ahead and give me what is coming to me now? And then secondly, he, he took it and he left, right? So, so the custom would have been for him to stick around to care for his aging parents, uh, to make sure that, that his father was buried properly, that his mother was provided for, but the son, he seems to take off with almost zero regard for his family. Uh, and again, this behavior would have been disturbing uh, to the audience. And, and thirdly, and I think, I think as he's telling this story to tech centers and tax collectors, they're in the distant land. <laughs> that some of them are guilty of this very same thing. And then, then thirdly, he spends his inheritance in what seems to be a relatively short time. That, that his father has taken this lifetime to accumulate it, and it represented these, these years of hard work and wise stewardship, yet the, the, the younger son spent it all on, on what he says short-lived pleasures, understanding that. That's the way it works. That, that all sin is expensive, and it's very fleeting, and his pleasure, this is such a bad illustration, but, but you'll think you can appreciate it. It's a lot like Taco Bell. That at the time seems like a good idea. Later in life, what was I thinking? All right? So, so this is what sin does. It seems to say, hey, there's a payoff here that will be worth it, and then down the road isn't 
at all. And it would seem that Jesus could have added nothing to make the sun sound more, any more disreputable. Uh, that uh, the father had every right in the world to write his son off as a sluggard, as an embarrassment to the family. But Jesus took this one step further. He, he, after he had run out of money and after he had hit a famine, the, the son takes a job. And if you were a Jewish person in this day, we, we were like, oh, he took a job feeding pigs. And we're like, that's not a big deal. But to them, huge. It made them unclean before God to touch swine. So he could have taken any job. Jesus could have given him any job. But he chose this one. And I believe in the whole story, this is the moment the whole room would have gasped. <gasps> what? And my suspicion is as we read uh, as we read this like we were watching it as a movie, that, that there is a moment as Jesus is telling this, this story, uh, and he's talking about a son who wonders, that you have the people in the group that sinners and tax collectors thinking to themselves, all right, it's another church guy who's going to yell at me. And then all of a sudden, he starts to talk about the response of the father. And you had those sinners and tax collectors saying, wait, what? And then all of a sudden you had the church people who were previously like, yeah, let's go get them. Maybe this guy's not so bad. And then they can't take it. They can't take it because he paints a picture of a, story, of a God that they don't know and they don't understand. And, and so, so the question is, why did Jesus picture the prodigal in such an extreme fashion. And I think it was because he's trying to help us understand something very basic about forgiveness. That the younger son's sinfulness was such that there was nothing left in him that should have motivated his father to forgive him. There's absolutely nothing. And yet his father forgave him because it was in his nature to love, and it was in his nature thus to forgive. And, and this is Jesus' exact point. That, that like the father in the parable, God forgives because it is his nature to forgive. We said this last week. He has chosen to forgive. And so, so nothing we can do on our own can prompt God to forgive us. It is his character that moves him, not ours. And so, so we've discussed God's initiating the forgiving process, and Jesus' vivid word picture uh, of a father and son, it, it portrays just, just that. That when Jesus got to the part of the story where he described the son's desire to return home, I can only imagine Pharisees feeling as, as though, um, as they thought about what they would do if this, they had a son like this, that, that no doubt they were shocked at how Jesus closed the story. And I can also only imagine the tax collectors and the sinners as they thought about how great it would be for some of them just to be able to go back home. So the son finally realized the futility of his ways. And I love, I love the line that Jesus uses, not that he needed my endorsement. He says, when the son came to himself, you ever been doing life with a person and you think, well, once they hit rock bottom, they'll figure it out? And then along the way, you realize that rock bottom just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper? 
And so Jesus says, when he came to himself, he decides to come home. And what I love about this is, is that there's no mention of him cleaning himself up. There's none. Because he's not, he's not trying to return home as a son, is he? No, he's like, I'm just going to try to go work for my dad. And so, so I'm coming, warts and all, I'm coming back. And when the father saw his son coming down the road, he ran toward him, he hugged him, he kissed him, he showered his affections upon the dirty, disheveled, hog-feeding son of his who has squandered it all. And dad seemed so unconcerned about where his son had been or what he had done and seemed so determined to let him know, I am so glad you're home. I'm so glad you're home. And it's a surprise ending, honestly. Surprise ending. Nobody in the crowd would have expected it. Everybody would have thought this would have played out a different way. And in it, we, we see some, some marvelous facets of our Heavenly Father's attitude toward returning sinners. Okay? Not, not people who return to sin, but people who are sinners returning home to Him. And number one, and we can follow along your talk notes if you'd like, that His love is inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. I had to look up how to spell it. And so, Lawson, they're, they're not going to know how to spell it if I don't know how to spell it. Uh, and so... That, that his love is inexhaustible. That, that if there had been a limit on how far the father was willing to stretch before cutting his son off completely, certain this guy would have gone too far. That, that he seemingly does everything wrong. And, and the point is, is very clear that, that a man or a woman cannot go so far that God's love and his forgiveness cannot reach them that the father would have accepted the son back at any time. He just had to come home. He just had to come back. That regardless of what you've done, and this isn't preacher talk, this is, this is truth, that regardless of what you've done, you have not outstretched God's limits. You haven't. It's good news for us. It's good news that your sin was dealt with at the cross that when Jesus dies, we die to sin. And as he rises again, we rise back to life. And as far as he's concerned, you live in a state of forgiveness. That, that, that even though we don't know how long the son had been gone, uh, it was at least long enough to spend a great deal of money, to suffer through a famine, to hold down a job. Jesus doesn't give us a time frame because it, it, it's irrelevant. It leads us to our next point, that, that number two, his love is patient. That our, our concept of patience and God's concept of patience radically different things. Right? You ever pray for patience and then God gives you a moment where you get to put that into practice and then you high-five yourself because you were patient for like six minutes? Like, no, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. That's good enough. Good job today. All right. I'll try to stretch that out a little bit later. So the story seems to indicate that the, father, that the, the boy's father made, makes it a habit of looking in the direction of where his son was. That when he sees him from a far distance, and he was willing to restore his son when, whenever he returned, and I think that God works the same way, that he patiently waits 
for you when you hear the call of a distant land and you leave home for it. That, that he doesn't sit and he doesn't scheme about, this is what people think, right? That, well, if I return to him, all he's been doing is thinking about what he's going to do to me when I return home. We have no indication of that. That God doesn't sit and scheme about what he's going to do if you decide to come home, but because he desires to have unbroken relationship, fellowship with you. He wants you to return. He, he wants you to walk in the depth of relationship that he's made possible for you in Christ. Because I've paid a huge price for it. And I long for you to come back home. Number three, he's eager to express his love. He's eager to express his love. And Jesus makes this clear. It says that when he rose and he came to his father, um, but I'm sorry, and he rose and he came to his father, but, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so, so in the New Testament, anybody who had dignity wouldn't be caught dead running in public. I don't know where that began, um, but if you're not a runner, maybe you can say, hey, I'm just holding up to the New Testament uh, of it's not dignified to run in public. Um, and so, so, but when the father sees his son coming down the road from a long way, he runs to him. Again, this, this would have stunned the scribes and the Pharisees. Because they, they say things like, you mean to tell me that God is eager to restore fellowship with sinners? How, how, could this, how could this Jesus be so brazen as to portray the God of the universe running toward a sinner, throwing his arms around him and restoring him? What kind of a God is that? And this was, this was not the way they imagined God at all. They saw him as a, as a wrathful God who delights in ending sinners. And do you, do you realize, this is, this is a crazy thought, do, do you realize that God is more eager to reestablish fellowship with you after you sin than you are? He is. That, and, and, and it's hard for me because there are times that, that I'm so reluctant to repent and confess as if he wasn't already aware of what I'm bringing to the table. But it's incredibly mind-boggling to me that he is more eager to restore that relationship with this guy than I am to go in his direction. That, that you can be assured that, that, that by looking and what he does to restore the fellowship with him, that he can't wait. The father can't wait for the son to return home. And so, so God's not sitting on his throne or in his principal's office with a notebook in hand and a whip in the other saying, boy, I can't wait till you get back. I'm going to give you what you deserve. That God is eagerly waiting for some of us to return so He can restore you, He can clean you up, He can give you purpose as a son and a daughter. That wasn't, that wasn't the goal, right? The son's just like, I'm just going to try to go back and be a worker. He's trying to get bread. And the response of the father was so crazy, crazily different. That, that as he approaches, and we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, let's go. Let's go. Number four. 
He receives uh, the returning sinner back into fellowship joyfully. Joyfully. This has been the whole purpose, right? This is the third parable that Jesus has told the same audience, one after another after another. And every time he talks about a celebration that happens when people who are sinners repent. When people who have dishonored God first and then dishonored themselves second, when they repent, there is great celebration. And we, we see this in, in two statements that Jesus made. First he said, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion for him. Now think about this. Jesus portrays the heavenly father in such a way that his immediate response to a returning sinner is compassion. It's compassion. Not, not anger, frustration, not indignation, all of which he had been justified in feeling but compassion. And so, so when we're confronted with people who have hurt us or abused our relationship with them, our initial response, uh, the, the one that just seems uh, happens without our plan in it, usually involves anger and hurt. And then if we're spiritual, uh, we, we may try to deal with those emotions by asking God to help us see things from His perspective. And I think in time, we can usually relate to those individuals in a civilized manner, but not necessarily in forgiveness. And this is, this is what makes the response of the Father so incredibly amazing to us, that out of His compassion, He identified with the hurt and the misery of His Son. And He wanted to alleviate that pain. His, his own hurt didn't get in the way of His ability to identify with the hurt of His Son. And I love the scene because being the son, I know how that would have played out. But you're returning home and you practice the speech all the way down, right? And it's almost as if the father doesn't want him to get it all the way out. <laughs> father, I've sinned against you. Shh, shh, shh. In fact, he doesn't even, in the story, does he even acknowledge the son? No. Because he's already forgiven him. He's moved past that point. He's here about restoring. In fact, he's holding the son. He's embracing the son. The son's like, Dad, you, I want to apologize. He turns around and he's like, Hey, give him the robe. The good one. Yeah, the good robe. Give him the ring. That's an indication that he's part of the family. He's not working. He is my son. Then he says, The calf. Let's kill it. Everybody eats good tonight. Because my son, who was dead, is now alive. My son, who was lost, is found. And it says, and they began to celebrate. And I, I love it. I love it because we see this, this idea of joy in Jesus' statement in verse 24 that they began to celebrate. It was a time of celebration for the father and he throws a huge party. And by the way, spoiler alert, the older son doesn't like this at all. At all. He's like, you've never even given me a calf. His great desire had been fulfilled. His son has returned home. 
So Jesus underscores this joy in each of the two parables. Again, he says, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep, which was lost. And then the woman concerning her coins says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And Jesus sums up both parables by saying, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so, so when you or any child of God turns from sin, God rejoices. He celebrates that. He says, let's restore them. Now, now the danger here, and we can start wrapping this up, Swan. Um, the danger here is that we would not have an unhealthy view of ourselves and an unhealthy view of God. Okay? We don't make much of ourselves saying, hey God, thanks for saving me. I'm a pretty big deal now. We don't do that. We don't bring that to the equation. We are constantly reminded of God's response towards us in the midst of our sinfulness. That He forgives and He restores when we confess and we repent. We're going to talk just a bit about that next week. What does confession and repentance look like? And what does God promise to do in response to that? But we walk in the forgiveness of God. And this is what we... I was a little concerned this week that if you were here last week, you would walk away saying, well, that's practically what he said last week. But it's so important that we would understand that God loves you because He has chosen to love you. And God offers you an opportunity to return home after you've gone to a distant land because He's chosen to forgive you. And then when you hear the call of a distant land again, and you look at Him and you say, Hey, I think I can find fulfillment elsewhere. And then when the bottom falls out and you come to your senses and you return home, He joyfully celebrates that moment. And then when you hear again the call of a distant land and you go and you say, I think I can find my, my enjoyment elsewhere and my pleasure elsewhere, and you go and then you come to your senses and you come back home, He celebrates that. And He celebrates that and He celebrates that. And then there's this argument that you can make in your mind and you won't be the first person ever because Paul brings us up in Romans. He says, well, then why don't we just keep sinning so that the grace of God may abound more and more and more? And Paul says, you're an idiot. Because you don't sin so that grace may abound. You avoid sin to show how incredible the grace of God is. And so we walk in repentance. And for some of us, this is the issue. That we don't want to walk in repentance, but yet we still want to live at the house. And God says, as long as you want to live in this house, not you have to live by my rules. He says, I want you to see how incredible it is here. I want you to understand how fulfilling it is. I want you to know how healthy life is 
here, how peaceful and joyful and purposeful life can be here. And every moment that you take when you go elsewhere, I want you to see how fleeting and how deadly those places are. I'm not removing joy from your life. I'm showing you where it's really, truly found. Thank you. It is. And so we identify with this guy, right? We identify with the sun. We feel that tension. And my prayer is that you would understand because this changes our motivation for coming home. It does. When I know my Father rejoices at my return, I am so much more willing to come back. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. Make a couple things available to you this morning. We, we, we long to pray with you if you need prayer. We, we believe in the power of community. We believe in the power of prayer inside that community. Maybe this is a time for you to repent. Maybe it is. I can't, I don't judge your life. I don't stand in judgment of your life. But only you and God know if there are things that you say, my heart's not right. We want to help you return home. Maybe you've never come home that first time. We want to help you in that process. We want to fight alongside you. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are thankful that you care for us. That you love us. And that you rejoice when we come back home. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.